Morning, everyone. The brave souls who got out in the snow. Good for you. I have a Band-Aid on my head. Just, just wanted you to know I had, I'm paying the price for too much sun as a teenager. So those of you who are still young and have young skin, sunblock and hats are a good thing. But I'm okay. Everything's fine. So last week in our series, Hoping for the Future, <clears throat> Pastor Dan reminded us that when we read New Testament epistles, letters, like First Thessalonians, when we're reading these, we are essentially engaging in something that most, in most situations today would be un, not only unethical, but quite illegal. Reading other people's mail. <laughs> but it's important to remember that New Testament letters, like First Thessalonians, these letters are mail. Because it's, it's true. Paul was addressing real people with real problems, and his choice of words and the topics that he's talking about reveal something of what the problems were and what they were dealing with. So, for instance... The first verse of this section begins with, now concerning love of the brothers and sisters. Right away, we ought to know something. Brothers and sisters usually love each other. But any parent in this room can tell you that even when they love each other a lot, they often don't act like it. Right, parents? So it's no stretch of the imagination to surmise that there may have been an issue with folks getting along in the Thessalonian church. Even though they knew what to do, it may be that they were not doing it very well. So Paul basically says, you don't need me to tell you what to do. God himself taught you about this. You know what to do. You've even proven that you're capable of being good at it. I remember when my sisters were teenagers, I'm the youngest of eight kids, so I had two sisters that are just older than me, Margaret and Dorothy. Dorothy um, is the second of the youngest, and she was often kind of more shy and quiet. Margie, or Margaret, um, was and still is, um, she's kind of one of those strong, silent types, but also strong not only in personality, but also physically. When she was in junior high, she used to arm wrestle the boys in junior high, the wrestlers. I think she was undefeated. I texted her this week, asking her permission to share this story I'm gonna share with you, and, and I said, um, you could probably still beat me in arm wrestling. And she answered me back with one word, probably. <laughs> But I remember when they were in junior high, they, they'd argue. I mean, there was a lot of kind of high-pitched arguing that happened in our house, a lot, two you know, teenage sisters. Um, Dorothy was in seventh grade. Margie was in eighth grade, I believe. And there was a circle of kids talking, and Dorothy was in that circle. 
And there was some bullying going on in that circle. And Dorothy was on the receiving end of the bullying. So Margaret walked into that circle and figured out what was going on. And she, being a person of not very many words, she just looked at that circle and it kind of got quiet. And she said, hey, you guys, bug out. How many of you know that, that phrase, bug out? See, there's a lot of you who don't. It's actually a real thing. It means basically you need to leave quickly or you're going to get hurt. <laughs> there's danger coming. Uh, bug out and bug off are things we used to say in the 60s. But bug out. And they, everybody just left. And there was just the two of them left standing there. And that has always been, in my family, one of those legendary phrases. Hey, you guys, bug out. That was what my sister said. In that time when being a sister was more important than anything else, because she loved her little sister. Now they were probably 10 minutes later arguing like, like normal. There was this, this is TV show we watch these days. I don't know if I should admit to this, but we watch Blue Bloods. It's on Channel 7 on CBS, and it's this, it's this long-running series now starring um, Tom Selleck and a bunch of others, but it's a family of, of New York City police officers. The grandfather is the former police commissioner. The father, Tom Selleck, is the police commissioner of New York City. And the sons are officers or detectives. One of them, the younger one is a sergeant, the older one's a detective. The daughter, is uh, DA. So the two sons in this last week, this is this week's episode, the two sons have a disagreement where the sergeant files basically a, a report on the older detective son because he didn't follow his directions on a crime scene. And so they have this big conflict between the two brothers. And it is going to court which will be a huge embarrassment to the family and to the police commissioner. And so they're standing outside of court, ready to go in, and Grandpa arrives on the scene and walks up to the two brothers. And Grandpa looks at them and says, what are you doing? And they each state their case. And both of them are right. But they state their case and Grandpa's response is classic. The two of you are brothers. Act like it. <laughs> and he walked off. And the two of them looked at each other and said, wow, we haven't seen him that mad since we, I forget what they did, got stains on his, you know, his suit or something. The two of you are brothers. Act like it. Paul is basically calling upon the Thessalonians here to allow the better angels of their nature to express the love that God has given them for each other. You are brothers and sisters. Act like it. Now, the good news is that they already know how to do this. In fact, their abilities were well known in the region. They were known for being a loving church. However, the story doesn't end there. In the second half of verse 10, we have this. But we urge you, beloved, which is an interesting statement right there. You are loved. 
we urge you, beloved, to do so more and more. What's he really saying here? Personally, I think it's kind of like a football coach who, who tells his team, hey, you're great at offense. You have an amazing statistics. You can move the ball. You control the clock. You can run. You can pass well. But there's just one detail. You also need to score touchdowns. It's one thing to have a great offense. It's quite another to put points on the scoreboard. It's one thing to love each other as brothers and sisters. It's great to know what to do. But here's the deal. Do it. Bottom line here is a lot of us have wonderful things to say about loving each other. We may be great encouragers. We can see the good in people and affirm them. Loving words come easy, maybe. But there comes a time when love is best expressed without words. With deeds of selfless or even sacrificial affection. One of the most loving expressions known to humanity is to lend a hand when someone is facing a difficult time to help. I remember now it's 11 years ago, 11 and a half years ago, we moved from the first house we had in Marysville down the hill to our present home. And on that moving weekend, I remember having conversations about the fact that we just had way too much to do. And it seemed an insurmountable task. It just seemed too hard. B both Chris and I have busy lives. We're both kind of at the center of basically nonprofit organizations, which can take all of your time. And we, the whole thought of moving, we were excited to move, but it just seemed like too much. We had two sets of friends, especially, that showed up to help. The whole Kreutz clan and our friends, the Wileys, came down from Bellingham. And wow, it was amazing how many, many hands can make an insurmountable task seem almost easy. It just happened in one day and we got moved. And it was amazing. I mean, they did, even did things like organize drawers and, and help us to have the courage to throw things away that we didn't need. You know, that's hard. But it, it was amazing how it happened. It was amazing. I remember that the other things that really weigh on me, one of them is painting the house. I just, the whole idea of painting to me is, is it just seems like, ah, so time consuming and so slow work and I'm not good at it. The other one is uh, we had a deck that was falling apart. In both of those situations, Jason's dad, Mark, showed up and just gave me weeks of help. Day after day, of building that deck and getting it all done. Day after day of painting the house. And it was amazing how we got, that, got those done. Such an encouragement when somebody lends a hand. So notice verse 11 one more time, and I hope you have it open in front of you. There's this surprising expression here I want to draw your attention to. He says these words, aspire to live quietly. 
The word aspire here is used to express ambition and even competitiveness, to aspire. But the word for live quietly, live quietly expresses being quiet and at rest. This is a very odd saying here. So uh, it, it's as if he's saying, yell in a whisper. Sprint slowly. I believe this is actually meant to catch our attention. That keeping your head down and quietly loving others is an art form. And that may not make sense at first, but that it's a worthy pursuit. There's something deep here. There's another part of this. He mentions not depending on anyone, and I think this is part of the picture. I believe there's a kind of help that fosters another kind of dependence. You know what I'm talking about? We call it by a name these days. Co-dependence. You know that term? A kind of dependence that's neither helpful nor healthy. It's a disabling dependence. Ten years ago, Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, I think his last name is pronounced, they wrote a book that's become very influential among people who follow Jesus. It's over a quarter million copies in print of When Helping Hurts. Have you heard of this book? It looks honestly at the ways that the church has often initiated a harmful cycle when material resources and evangelism to the poor has actually reinforced a sense of inferiority among them, a lack of self-esteem, even among disadvantaged people, which in turn increased the original problem they faced, made things worse when helping hurts. Now this is not, I believe, what God wants for the church, no. The apostles' vision for love, tangibly expressed love here, involves helping each other wisely. His vision for the community of Jesus' followers is that they will know how to work hard and to love well. Not a community where some are overworked while others are sponging off those who happen to be generous. You follow this? I must say that we could learn something from our families who have recently come from Pakistan here. For me and Chris, it's been our privilege to be with them in these last four years, to have life together, to observe them. We had a fantastic celebration here, right here last night of Samson and Sakila's 25th anniversary. They reaffirmed their vows and it was a wild party. It was so much fun. But as I have observed this community from um, South Asia, and you're all sitting all throughout our congregation, which is very amazing that you do that. I notice that you work really hard. Some of you have multiple jobs. You leave one job and you go to another one in the same day. You work long, long hours. I notice that you share with each other, that there is a real community aspect to your love for each other, and that your affection for each other and your love for each other is expressed and it's deep. I watch this 
and I've even experienced it, and I am in awe of it. We could learn something from this. American folks, we could learn something. I mean, here's a warning. We live in an incredibly affluent time and place here. By world standards, we are filthy rich. It's so easy to forget the kind of life that God intends for us when we get so much stuff in our lives. Affluence blinds us to the reality that all of us, no matter how much or how little we have, all of us have only the things and resources that God has granted to us. All gifts come from God. It's all from God. And to hoard it or to hold it with a clenched fist is not his best plan for us. God doesn't want us to foolishly squander resources by indiscriminately throwing money around to solve problems, but he also calls us to do something deeper, something more than hoarding behavior, which is self-diminishing activity, hoarding. When taken to its extreme, it can turn you into a Scrooge-like person, living all by yourself, reducing your world down to the point where your only word in your vocabulary is mine. That's a very small, very lonely universe to live in. But there are lots of better options in helping others. The, the ancient teaching of Maimonides, I don't know if you've heard of this before, but he was a he was a Jewish philosopher that lived in the 12th century, a Sephardic Jew from um, Egypt. And he became a very famous teacher. And he actually outlined eight levels of giving. The uh, Hebrew word for this uh, teaching is tzedakah. And this is really interesting to me. I've, I've been aware of this for for a long, long time. I want to share it this morning. Eight levels of giving or eight levels of generosity. Level eight, going from number one. Number one is the best, okay. Level eight, to give grudgingly with a sour countenance or to give out of pity is number eight. So there's some generosity there but you're only giving because you're feeling pity. It's, it's better than nothing, but barely, okay? So that's the eighth level. The seventh level, giving less than you can afford, but doing it pleasantly. So this is to basically provide something, but to do it kind of inadequately. Now, this can give someone the strength to go on. I mean, one of the reasons we're talking about this whole subject this morning is because it fits with our topic, hoping for the future. Generosity is one of the greatest ways that we can help to recover hope for other people. Generosity is one of the, one of the ingredients to being able to instill hope in people we know and love. But how we do it, is important. So level seven, giving less than you can afford, but doing it pleasantly. Level six, giving generously, but only after being asked. 
One of the things I think it's important to remember is for many of us, asking for help is incredibly difficult. And I think we need to remember that when somebody comes and asks for help, just pause and think, what did it take for them to come to this point of asking? And don't assume, let's not assume that they're just going around asking everyone. The practice of The, the ne to, to necessarily have to ask can be an act of desperation. Level six, giving generously, but only after being asked. Level five, giving before you are asked. Now, here's, this, is, this is getting kind of interesting. There's actually two disciplines involved in giving before someone asks you. One of the disciplines that you could be learning is the discipline of noticing. That you, are, that you are paying attention to the people around you enough to notice that something's wrong or something's missing or they're, they're going without. They're not saying anything, but you noticed it. And you can give in a way that is thoughtful. Now, the other discipline is the practice of seeking out opportunities for gener generosity. To, you know, realizing that generosity is something that is something we're called to do and so actually being, being a, more than aware, but actually seeking out those opportunities. All of that could fit under the level of five of, being, of giving before you're asked. Now we've still got four to go. So this, you, know, you kind of wonder, now what is, where is this going? In levels four, three, and two, there is some aspect of anonymity that comes into it which is really an interesting factor. So level four, the recipient knows the giver, but the giver does not know the recipient. The recipient knows the giver, but the giver does not know the recipient. So you are, you are giving to somebody, they know it's you, but you, but you don't know who you're giving to. And then in level four, it's three, it's actually the opposite. The giver knows the recipient, but the recipient does not know the giver. So there, there's two issues in these two levels. The, 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 the dignity of the recipient and the ego of the giver. See where I'm going with this? To, to maintain the dignity of the recipient they, you know, if they don't know who gave it, then it doesn't, it's not a blow to their dignity. But what the, what the giver has to be careful of is if they know who they're giving to, it can be an ego thing. I'm, you know, am, am I not wonderful that I'm giving to this person? So there's, uh, you know, superiority and dependence are the two issues of those two. Level two. Of course, giving anonymously where the recipient does not know the giver and vice versa. So neither of them know each other. The, the recipient doesn't know where the gift came from and the giver doesn't know who got it. Now, the classic example of this practice is actually what Christian Serenity does for us here at Mountain View, the Deacon Fund. 
we give as a church, we tithe, we give our offerings here. Some of the, the money at Mountain View goes into the deacon fund. And then the deacon fund, people can come and make a request to the deacon fund and the, the money is, is dispersed in a benevolent way. And um, those who gave it are not aware of who, who gets it. And those who receive are not aware of who gave it. So this is that second, an example of that second level. So, level one. Where could this possibly go? Level one is helping someone become self-sufficient. And this could be helping someone with a, an interest-free loan, helping someone with becoming a business partner with them, finding a job for somebody, inspiring somebody in their, in their pursuit of who they're becoming and where they're going in their lives. One of the most basic needs of a human being is to feel needed and to feel capable. So the highest form of tzedakah is to help someone find a job or to set them up in business. I think this is, if you presented all of this to the Apostle Paul in what he's teaching in 1 Thessalonians, he'd say, aha, that last one. I love that last one. I think that's what he's getting at. I challenge you this morning to stop and think, who was it in your life that did this for you? This room is full of people who have achieved quite a bit of success in your life. You've done schooling, you've been successful in your work, in your occupation, in business. You may be retired. You may be in a time of life where you're enjoying the fruit of your labor. You may be extremely capable and well-trained and enjoying your career. How did you get there and who encouraged you who helped you in this level number one sadaka? And of course, the next question is now, to whom are you giving at this level? Friends, let's be both loving and wise when it comes to this. This is when helping helps. Amen. Let's pray.